Good morning, everyone. How are we? And especially, uh, I'd like to add my welcome to those faces that I don't recognise, those who are with us for the first time. Uh, if you're a student that's just arrived in Oxford, uh, well done for finding us uh, this far out beyond the edge of civilization. Um, if you've come beyond the railway station and wonder uh, how you might, well done for getting here. It's great to have you with us. And uh, anyone who's with us, um, we trust that you are enjoying the sense of God's presence with us. And you know what? This is a great, I love leading this church. This is a great group of people. If this is the first time you've met with them, then um, you've just got so much to still discover about how much love and grace and wisdom there is amongst these people. I love them. And uh, it's great together now to be looking at God's word. As Dan has said, we're in a season in which we are looking at the theme of abundant life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life in abundance. And yet sometimes that's a little distance off our lived out experience. I don't know how often you finish your day saying, well, that was an amazing, abundant day. I can't wait to wake up tomorrow morning and discover more of all the abundance of what God has. Maybe you do sometimes. But my understanding is there's a little bit more of that for us to discover than we yet have. And that's why we're looking together at the abundant life that God provides. And in particular, we're looking in Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. The first half of that particularly has a focus on the gospel about Jesus Christ. And it's through the gospel, through the Christian gospel, the gospel about Jesus, that we are introduced to this abundant life. Now this morning, what we're going to be looking at is the theme of work. Because If there's one thing that sometimes makes life feel less than abundant, uh, for many people at least, it can be the tiredness and the stress associated with work. So what we're going to look at this morning is how the gospel about Jesus Christ speaks directly into that, and it makes a very practical difference. A little reminder from the last few weeks is that the gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. And news is the announcement of an event that means something to us, that has significance for our lives. The good news about Jesus announces the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, what we would now describe as the first Easter. And One of the consequences of that event is that it makes it possible for us to have a better relationship with work. A better relationship with work. I wonder if there's anyone here who needs a better relationship with work. Then you have, oh, there we go. Yeah, that'll be most people then. And this is good news for many more than just us. Because even if you have a great relationship with work at the moment, I bet you know some people who don't, whether that's family or colleagues, fellow students, people who don't have a great relationship with work. So what we're going to do is look at just a few verses 
In this series, we're not attempting to bring out all of the riches of the letter to the Romans, but just, just dipping in and finding that there's plenty there. Looking in Romans chapter 3 and a little bit in Romans chapter 4, these bits, I'm missing out a bit in between that's about Jews and Gentiles because we're going to be looking at that theme, reconciliation between people, next week. So here's just a few verses from Romans chapter 3. And in verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you see there, I've explained what that word justified means. It means being made right with God. If that word is still a bit of a confusion to you, I recommend you go online. I'm sure there's other places you could look into this, but I did speak on this just a few weeks ago from Romans 1 about what it means to be justified. So if that's a bit of a question for you, you can find out more there. But Paul says here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to explain a bit more of that and its implication for human relationships. And then in, verse, sorry, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, says this. Uh, Abraham, who's our forefather, Abraham, yeah, sorry, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, there's the word work, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that word righteousness is the same meaning as the word justified I talked about a moment ago. It's about being made right with God. Abraham believed God, And that made things right between him and God. So this is what we're going to unpack this morning, these few verses. But in order to do that, first of all, we're going to step back from Romans and help us to get our bearings and answer the the question first of all. um, Well, I already know the answer to that. A number of you have the wrong kind of abundance. I think that's what the nods were about a minute ago. Um, But what is work? What is work? Because uh, there, are, there are different definitions. I don't know if you've ever read about work and what people think it means. You can find some different definitions of it. But if we're going to understand the New Testament view of work, then one thing that it, it might be helpful to do is to look at the words that it actually uses. And here's the word that it uses for work. The word for work in Greek is ergon. Uh, from which we get ergonomics and various other things. And then to say that someone is at work, someone is active, um, is the word energon, which you might notice is where we get, via Latin, in fact, our word energy. So the words work and energy are linked together. And so we can see that work is anything that uses up our energy. Work is anything that uses up our energy, be that physical energy or emotional, intellectual energy. We know when we've done things that we might describe leaving us feeling 
tired, weary, depleted, run down sort of thing. Actually, whether or not something counts as work is not determined by whether or not we're paid for it. Uh, the story is told of some early missionaries going to China who delighted themselves in setting up a tennis court and playing tennis, which surprised people locally. And one day, as they were playing tennis, some local people came along and stood next to the court and looked on, you know, in, in amazement at, at what was going on, and eventually stopped them and said, I'm sorry, but couldn't you pay someone to do this for you? It's not about whether we're paid for it or not. Some things use our energy even though we're not paid to do them. Um, and it's, neither is it about where we give out our energy. Research has shown that over 2 million people in the UK prefer being in their workplace to being at home. Because presumably their home life takes up more energy than their working life so-called working life, whether that's because of relationship tensions at home that are emotionally draining, or maybe you're the only person in your household who ever does any of the domestic chores. So it's not about whether or not we're paid, it's not about, whether, about where it is, but work is anything that uses up our energy. So having said that, you might be feeling a bit glum about work, and I thought, I've just left that for the rest of the week, and here we are uh, on a Sunday morning thinking again about, again about work. But here's another part of getting our bearings, because the scriptures tell us that, that work is good. It's a picture of God, as it were, painting the world into existence. The reason that we know that work is fundamentally a good thing is that God is a worker. God is a worker, and we, human beings, are made in his likeness. So Genesis 1, creation story, describes God making the world, and he's actually a very good worker. I don't know whether you've noticed this. He had a really well-organized schedule. He had one main focus for each day. Uh, he did the big jobs first. He reviewed his achievements at the end of each day, and he finished the job. If you went to a time management seminar, they would tell you all of those things, and you could have pointed them to Genesis chapter 1 and said, I know. My God, our God, is a worker, and he's a good one. He knows what he's doing. So when it says towards the end of Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That task of subduing the earth, of expending energy to shape things to be better than they were, that's not some, that's not some arbitrarily chosen kind of random exercise. It's because we're made in God's image. We're able to work productively because God is a worker 
and we're made in his image. And so it's no surprise that in his image and likeness, we are given work to do. Work is a good thing. Through work, we, we shape the world. And through work, we also gain the things that meet our practical needs. So when in another of Paul's letters, the, what, the second letter to the church in Thessalonica, where it's in chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul gives a rule that anyone who is unwilling to work shouldn't eat. Now, that's not just about social fairness and sharing the work out. It's also because Paul didn't want anyone to miss out on a good thing. That is the opportunity and privilege of work. And that through work, good things might take place. So work is anything that expends our energy. Actually, that's a good thing. Expending our energy is a, is a good thing. So with that in mind, let's come back to Romans and to chapter 3 and verse 21, where it says something different and perhaps on the face of it, a bit contrary. Because here it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'd like to suggest that another way of saying the same thing is to say that our work is inadequate. This pole vaulter is having a moment of inadequacy. The abundant life that Christians can enjoy is not achieved by our work. Our experience as human beings is that our workload exceeds our energy, and so we tire out. The things that we know we're meant to do are frequently beyond our ability. So although as humans we're formed in the likeness of God, we don't actually act like God. Formed in his likeness and able to, but they're not. We don't actually act like God. We don't do his works. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is tied up with the fact that he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with perfect relationship and common submission to the Father's will, always working together to do his will. Not so with us. We, we don't act like that. We shirk and we shrink. We shirk from what God wants us to do, and we shrink back from close relationship with him. And so, though we were made to be like God, we all sin. We all fall short of his glory. And sin, sin is not such a popular word today. Uh, mo- as we know, mostly associated with eating chocolate in wider culture. Uh, but the experience of what it means to sin, the experience of it is actually very well known. It's a common experience The experience of living on empty, having used up all of our energy without having yet achieved everything we should. It's a common experience. 
feeling that, that there is more to do than we can possibly achieve. An awareness at the end of each day that some of our potential for good, the potential for good that today held, wasn't realized. It didn't happen. Left at the end of the day feeling, this wasn't right. There are things I never got to. And as well as all of that, there's also a common feeling, not just amongst Christians, I mean to say a common feeling, that our limitations are seen by others and that we are found wanting and unwanted and even liable to be punished for our limitations and our failures. If you're a student, you might fear being rusticated. Uh, If you don't know what that means, talk to a student. They're lovely people. And uh, they'll explain to you, punishment may follow when others see our limitations. Because all of those feelings, the experience of living on empty, the experience that the work always goes on beyond what we can do, that I'm limited, that my potential is unfulfilled, those are everyday conversations that are had by people in workplaces across the country. All of those things are true. And the Bible is honest about that reality, only it doesn't just speak of the human experience. It gives the full picture, which includes God. And that's why Paul says, we fall short of God's glory. That's the big picture that is being experienced. And actually, says elsewhere in Romans, we are indeed judged by God's standards and will be punished by God for our failures. So here we go. Here's the truth. This is the truth. Our work is inadequate. Our work is inadequate. But, as Dan has said from the start of this morning's meeting, we have a God who works. Our work is inadequate, but we have a God who works. His energy never runs out. Claire's prayer is book of God's love never coming to an end. That's true. It's also true that his energy never comes to an end. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get fed up. We do. We tire out. We expend our energy and we haven't got much left. God expends energy and he's got just as much as when he started. These, um, if the events that the gospel announces, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are sometimes described by theologians as the work of Christ, with a capital W, the work of Christ. This is what he has done. And the New Testament tells us that whereas our work is inadequate, never comes to an end, Christ's work is complete. The particular task, the particular job that Christ took on in coming to earth in order to save us, that work is complete. His task of opening up a new way to God so that all of us might be saved from judgment and empowered to meet God's standards, that's been completed. On the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished! 
done. My work is over. I've completed it. And so going back to Romans chapter 3, now in verse 24, it says, We have been justified as we have been made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This picture of Jesus' death as a redemption is something that the early church spoke about, but came from Jesus' own lips. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that Jesus said that the Son of Man, by which he was describing himself, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom and redemption is it's the same sort of a thing. In the ancient world, there was widespread slavery, and people were trapped held in slavery. But one thing that could happen was you could go and buy a slave and then set them free. You could do that. In fact, some people with money liked to do that. You could buy someone's, uh, the ownership of someone within the system and then set them free. And what the payment might be called was a a redemption payment or a ransom payment, a payment to set someone free. And Jesus says that's what his death was, that when he died, it's like he bought us that we might be set free. It's great to hear Eddie speaking out in a tongue. Um, I just love it. I don't know, I mean, Eddie, it's been some years now since you had a stroke and speech, everyday speech is not straightforward for you. But speaking in tongues, that works. And isn't God amazing? I, I take it as a sign of just how much he wants every one of us to be able to contribute and participate together with God's people that he's made that. Isn't it brilliant, isn't it? It's a good thing. So Jesus died... Payment made to set us free from sin. The fact fact of our work being inadequate and all of the limitation of that, that thing in which we're trapped, Romans also tells us, it's not just that we sin, we're stuck in it. It's a kind of slavery. But Jesus sets us free. That's what we're talking about. Jesus' work sets us free. Now here's the really cool part, moving on to chapter 4. It says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what we see here is it wasn't Abraham's energy, it wasn't Abraham's work that helped him. Rather, he trusted in God. He had faith in God. He believed in God. Um, A few weeks ago, I used this picture to highlight the way in which John Calvin, great theologian of the Reformation, described faith. 
Calvin said, faith means that we come empty, but with mouths open. We come empty, but with mouths open. It's, it's not an activity that we have to perform to a certain standard. It's simply, faith is simply a willingness to receive from God that which he's promised to give to us. And that's what Abraham did. God had promised him that he would be a father of nations. And he chose to believe God. He said, I'll have that then. He came with his mouth open and said, I will receive that which you've promised. This, then, is how the gospel introduces us to a different relationship with work. It announces the fact that God was at work in Christ, that Christ has completed all the work that's needed for us to be put right with God. And so instead of trying to earn our way forward through our own energy, we can trust God with all the things that matter. Can you imagine your working life lived out with complete trust in God? that all the things that matter, he would see through to completion. Because I'm talking here about our working lives, but as I've already said, it's not just about the workplace and what we're paid for, but every point in our lives where we find ourselves expending energy, giving something of ourselves, at every one of those areas of life, trusting God that what he'd promised would come to pass. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. In the spring, I found myself at a conference, um, the sort of like family of churches of which we're part. Those of you who don't know that, Oxford Community Church is part of a family in the county called Oxfordshire Community Churches, very logical. And then beyond that, part of a network called Salt and Light uh, ministries, which has churches across the UK and beyond. And in the spring, we had a gathering of leaders from across all many different nations. Um, and it was great. And as part of that conference, they had us sat in, in small groups to process some of the things that had been shared. And I found myself in a group with, uh, with four other men. They were all men. I don't know if it was deliberate that they put us in small groups that way. But um, there's me in my early 40s, two other guys also in their early 40s, someone in his 20s, and then someone who's a little bit older than us, I would say probably his late 50s. And uh, perhaps a little bit predictably, those of us in our early 40s all said, as we were processing what God was saying to us, the thing is we just feel a bit overwhelmed by all the responsibilities and all the stuff, and it's like, ah, it's quite burdensome doing everything that's expected of us. Those three of us in our early... Anyone who's at that stage of life will, will, will know that feeling, and so might well people at other stages of life. Guy in his 20s was full of advice for us. <laughs> it was great. He knew just what we should do, and he told us all about if we just did more, it'd be fine. And if we did it more like he did it, then it would be great. And so we thanked him for his kindness... And we turned to the guy in his late 50s, who was from India. He lives in a hill station at a place called Kanur. 
um, where there are tea plantations, tea gardens. And uh, he decided to tell us a story. He told us the story of having moved to this place. He'd actually moved to take on leading a church there in a place that local people only left and didn't come back to because of the nature of the local economy and and how that worked. It wasn't the easiest place, therefore, to think about going and achieving things through your work. It was a place from which resources um, flowed away. And uh, he worked, he was used to working really hard. He was clearly a hard-working, diligent, almost kind of military kind of a guy. And he gave himself to doing everything he could to try and help people who had challenges in their marriage or, or in their workplaces or um, setting up things to reach out to new people and did all, invested his energy, expended his energy. And then God said to him, stop. I want you to take three weeks to do nothing. And he's like, oh, great. So I, instead of doing all the activity stuff, I can just pray. And God said, no. No, I don't want you praying about all these things. Just stop it. Just put your feet up, read a book, three weeks. Just don't do anything. Uh, which he found challenging. Really, really challenging. At the end of the three weeks... He was about to get up and go do the stuff with renewed energy. And before he could get up and do that, people started to get in touch with him, telling him either how long-standing problems had just somehow got resolved in that three weeks, or coming to him to confess the thing that he'd never managed to get them to be open about, or people in broken relationships coming together saying, we recognized our need for reconciliation, would you please help us? Or, you know, and again and again, just God had been at work whilst he'd had his feet up. Now, this is not, by the way, the moral of this story... (laughs) You see, I'm still in my 40s and I'm still learning. You know, um, one of the things that we've done as a church in the last few years is we've begun a primary school. Hooray. We had a founding principal for that primary school who was great, who told us she'd be leaving once it got up and running. And I didn't, I couldn't find it in my heart to believe her that she'd go. But she she did, uh, which is fine. She's married an economics professor and it required moving elsewhere. And I can forgive her going. It's it's fine. Um, (laughs) wonderful that Keith was able to take over being principal in the interim. Um, In the early part of this year, we were recruiting for a longer term principal. It's pretty demanding. You know, not not lots of people want to be head teachers of schools. Steve Beagle is a saint. He's the principal of the King's School. It's not a job that people are queuing up to do. There's the truth of it. And having set up a school that we were determined would be a place of Christian witness and a place of prayer, as well as a place where kids get great uh, exam results and, you know, all of of that. So I decided 
um, that it would be really sensible for me to fast and pray. And I was just looking at my diary thinking, okay, where are the weeks I can strike out? I'm not seeing too many people. It won't be too awkward to fast for that week. And then when can I do another one? And I need to fast and pray. I need to, come on. And God just whispered to me gently and he said, just stop that. Uh, I heard him clearly say, whose idea was this school? Like, like, re- like, do you really think, this is me then filling in what I think he was, you know, do you really think that you need to persuade me? Like, I don't care, and you've got to, so just, just leave it to me. Don't, don't worry about fasting. Don't worry about praying. Don't particularly, I mean, people will want to pray, but don't call people to pray. I've got it in hand. I was like, that is difficult, God. That is really difficult for me. And I suppose what was going on was that if I'd worked really hard to seek a good candidate and it had failed, well, you know, I'd still look all right, wouldn't I? Because I'd done my best. Hooray, Steve did his best. If I did nothing and it didn't work out very well, there would be a fair measure of criticism that might come my way. Is that... Yeah, that's, that's what's going on. So, the issue is one of trusting God. God whispers by his spirit, don't worry, I've got it sorted. I suppose it may have felt a little bit like that for Abraham, those thousands of years ago. God says, I'm going to give you kids. Don't worry. And there's this moment of choice. Do I trust him? Do I trust him? Or do I just need to do it? Do I need to work at it anyway? Even though I know that my work's going to be inadequate and it's not going to achieve, am I just going to work anyway? Because it's like a, it's a thing I do to make myself feel better when I'm not trusting God. It's like a distraction from the spiritual reality of my limited faith. Anyway, I didn't pray uh, much. <laughs> And God's provided wonderfully. Some of you, we had um, Matt Watt here uh, earlier in the summer, and we prayed for him and commissioned him to the role. And he's brilliant. It's actually better than I thought was possible, um, which is great. God had it in hand all along. You know, the challenges that you face, God, God knows about them, and he, he, has, he has it in hand. He's not surprised and actually, when, when many of you go to work tomorrow and before 11 o'clock, um, surprising problems come to plague you, as can happen at work, God's not surprised. He's not like, oh, I didn't see that come in. We can trust him. Um, there's a verse in uh, Zechariah chapter 2 which I love. It has this phrase, be still in it. It actually says, be still before the Lord all mankind, for he has roused himself. He has roused himself. And that's why in the gospel we see a connection between God's work and what what works like for us. Because God is active, it makes it possible for us to be still. And, and to trust him. Um, on my 19th birthday, 
the Toronto blessing hit Oxford. I don't know how many of you remember, maybe I'm just talking nonsense to some people. There was a movement of the Spirit of God in the mid-90s which surprised us all. And God worked in power in ways that we had not foreseen and which were wonderful. And uh, on my 19th birthday, some guys from the Vineyard Church in Oxford met at St. Old Eights in Oxford, and lots of us turned up, and God turned up in a new way. It was wonderful. Um, one of the things that happened for me uh, in the weeks that followed, and some of you will know this as part of my story, I was, str- I was literally struck dumb um, in the wake of that new experience of God, that new encounter with God, there was a new desire in me to go further with him. And I, was, I, was, um, I just finished being a student at Wadham College, and there I was in someone else's room who was still a student at Wadham, and we were praying, just three of us, someone who was a long-standing Christian friend, someone who'd just become a Christian and was still a little bit unsure about a few things. Um, huh, they're both professors in universities now. Um, anyway... They finished praying, or we finished praying, and they started talking. We've been praying, oh God, would you give us more, lead us forward. And I, I went to speak, and, and I couldn't. I just, I just, it just, it was like that part of me had just, just like a, I just wasn't there. It's the most extraordinary experience. Then, as now, quite a bit of the work that I, I do and the impact of my life, the expending of my energy is through words. That's what I'm doing right now. And the experience that I had, and some of you have heard me describe this before, it was like a flywheel with all of its weight in motion, with all of the inertia that you'd, re- you know, it's, it's just going and going and and it was like, in a moment, God took hold of something in me and just put his finger on it. And it was like the flywheel just stopped. It was like some part of my own energy that I was used to expending. God just stopped the flow. He said, let's stop that. Let's not have that. And it was a bit awkward, because they were having a conversation and I couldn't talk, and they were like, Steve, no, really, what do you think? Steve, should we go out now? Steve. And I couldn't speak. I, I could write, thankfully. I wrote down, I have been struck dumb. <laughs> and they were like, ha, ha, ha. It's like... And perplexed. I would say they were perplexed. I was perplexed. They were perplexed. And they wandered out of the room to go off and do something else. I was like, weirdo. What's that all about? I cherish that experience. And others of you will have had experience of moments in God's presence when it wouldn't have been, I mean, my experience is what, it, is what it was, but many people here will have had experiences where just an awareness of God has come with just overwhelming presence. No coincidence that the glory of God in the Hebrew language is described as a heaviness. There's like, God has come. Zechariah describes it like this. He has roused himself. And because he 
is active because he is expending his energy. You know, we can go for a bit without expending ours. We can be still. Did you know that the Sabbath is to time what tithing is to money? You see, the biblical principle of tithing says you give away a tenth of your income and that you trust God will cause the ends to meet and there to be enough. You know, well, 90% is not going to go as far as 100%. Well, no, it does. It's an act of God. We trust him with our money by, by giving a tenth of it away. The difference between the Sabbath principle and tithing is actually the Sabbath one is a bit more demanding. It's not a tenth, it's a seventh, which is roughly 4% up as a proportion. It's more of our time. God says, just be still. With some of your time, be still. And in the same way that giving away money is an act of trust that God will sort it out, God will provide all that's needed. Choosing to be still for a period of time is also an act of trust. It's the act of trust that David in Canor, amongst the tea gardens, took three weeks to learn. It's an act of trust. God will do it. God's active. God's energy is at work. And that my, my taking time to be still is an act of trust in him. It says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. We can believe God. What we're going to do now is we're going to sing together as a song about, um, about stillness. Um, Which, if you're my age, you'll know. If you're younger, you may have to catch up with the glory of the olden days. I don't know. But the band are going to lead us. And we are going to take some time now to recognize God's presence and to be still. As, as different ones of us were praying before this morning's meeting began, um, we all, quite independently, had a clear expectation Arising, We believe God was leading us into an expectation that, that just he was going to be at work amongst us this morning. He's going to be at work. So I don't think we're going to have the kind of response where, oh, come down the front and do this. And do this. The point here is God is about to be at work. He's been at work already. He's about to be at work in new ways. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Lord God, thank you that you sent Jesus and in his completed work, you opened a way to relationship with you. You made provision for our salvation and for us to be made right with you. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are just so generous in expending your energy and in Christ, even expending your life for us. Lord, I pray that you would reorder us inside so that that work, that works mentality would be washed away. Wash it away, God. All of those kind of obsessive needs to do things and the compulsive proving of ourselves and all of that. Lord, wash it away, I pray. And grant us a simple faith.
to trust you as we're still in your presence.